Um, so the, the title of this sermon is No Pain, No Gain, Embodying the Word. No Pain, No Gain, Embodying the Word. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, don't agree with everything he says, but C.S. Lewis um, once said in the book called The Problem of Pain, he said, pain is God's megaphone in our ear. That's from one of the greatest intellectuals of the 20th century. Pain is God's megaphone in our ear. And once upon a time in the in a 20th century gym or 20th century practice field somewhere, there was the person who first uttered the phrase, no pain, no gain. Right? Someone first uttered it. But this, this, this almost what has become an axiom. This has been uttered by plenty of people throughout history. This, at least this sentiment has been uttered throughout history. For instance, Ben Franklin once wrote, there are no gains without pains. And for those kids in the audience, Ben Franklin is the president on the $100 bill. And he also, if, if my uh, interpretation of a picture I colored one time in school is he invented a kite that shot out lightning. It's going to be a long morning, people. It's going to be... It killed in the first service, so... But it's no pain, no gain is one of these unfortunate truisms of life. Struggle, hardships, they produce. They make us better. I think any of you can probably uh, reflect on your recent history. If you're walking with the Lord well, you can understand how when those trials come, and it just it drives you to your knees, you sort, of, um, you sort of realize you can't do it alone, and it draws you closer to him. It also gives you confidence that, man, when you, when you know that a trial is coming or you're in the midst of it, is that he will work it out for your good. But nonetheless, they're hard. And every one of you in here probably has an interesting story to tell of how God's faithfulness has used trials to just draw you closer to him and to make you stronger, to make you better. But we're going to look at James uh, 2, 12 through 27 today. And we're going to explore the mysteries of the trials of the Christian uh, faith. And James talks about the benefits, God's help, and the results. So I'm going to read, as I, as I typically do, I'm just going to share my methodology because if you're like me, you might wander a little bit. And so I'm telling you, like, here are your on-ramps back on if you lose attention. I read the text, I give you three questions, and then I break the passage up. We read the passage, exposit or comment upon the passage, you know, steep in it a little bit, give you a principle, application. Text, exposition, principle, application. Text, principle, application, principle, application. 
All right? So, I'm going to read 2, 12 through 27. And this passage actually requires going through at least twice. Um, there's a lot in it, and there's a lot of shifting around, but, uh, but we'll get through it today. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, and uh, I'm reading from the ESV. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers, beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of God, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the imparted word, implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their infliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world." So, here are the three questions that are going to help us navigate this sort of complicated passage. First, why must we go through trials? Well, if you've, been, if you've heard Craig up here over the last, you know, 30 minutes, um, I think, and, and from what we've been singing, you probably have some guess as to what, the answer to that. Second, how does God help us through trials? And then finally, what is the desired result? So first, why must we go through trials? And the answer is twofold. Uh, we're actually going to spend a little bit more time in this, this just a few verses than, you know, this will take up a, a good part of our, a good chunk of our time here. So the text, I'm going to read 12 through 15 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, what it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there are at least two reasons in this text 
why we suffer hard. Um, one, which we're going to get to like in five minutes, is fallenness. And we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that second, though. But the other one is, it seems that this is just God's design. So God has arranged the world, at least when it comes to the quote-unquote limp mode, limp mode of the fallen order, that we need to grow in our virtues and our desires. I mean, remember, recall some of what Craig preached uh, last week. In verses 2 through 4, James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So who of you get pumped when you see a trial coming your way or you're in the midst of it? You know, you're like Rocky. You're like, you're ready. You're ready, right? But we're supposed to count it all joy. Be excited. That's hard. Easier said than done. Now, one of the questions, why does not God just give us our spiritual gifts and natural gifts in full bloom? Why doesn't he? Wouldn't life be easier? Wouldn't church be a little easier on Sunday morning? If we were just all in, we had all made it. We're all sanctified. No one's going to say anything snarky to you. No one's going to say anything that rubs you the wrong way. Everyone's going to have the perfect answer in, in Sunday school class. This just does not seem to be God's M.O. or modus operandi in this post-fall period. We acquire knowledge over a long period of time. We acquire wisdom over a longer period of time. We get stronger, not immediately, but through pains. We get more stamina and endurance through running. We become better musicians or artists only through hard work. You know, I don't think the, I don't think the greatest geniuses in music were like, oh, what's that? It's a piano. Well, and five minutes later, they're, it just doesn't work that way. That's the way it is, and I think even in the spiritual realm. Some trials that work for you may not work for someone else. Some trials that work for someone else may not work for you. Um, There's the saying that I learned in the 80s, different strokes for different folks, right? And in fact, and, uh, you know, getting back to the physical realm, I may have shared the story with you, but about 15 years, I heard a deep philosophical dispute between two gym enthusiasts. There was a loud, chatty guy, I don't remember his name, but I I was just resting and just sort of people watching as I was resting up. And there was a loud, chatty guy. He was, like, always there. Either it was a great coincidence, or he pretty much lived there, and he would just talk to people. And he's spotting a guy doing skull skull crushers. And you know what those are? Like, you lay on the... You have a weight, and you bring it over your skull, because then if you drop it, it it gets crushed. That's why they call it that. I mean, it's not a joke. That's really what they call it. And he's like... 
And so the guy's like, all right, come on, man. Like, the, he had the chatty guy in back of him spotting him. He's like, come on, man, come on. Yeah, go, go. And the guy put it down. He's like, what are you doing? He said, and the other guy said, I got to 10. And then the other guy, the chatty guy said, 10? 10? You had more than that. He said, yeah, but I got to 10. He said, body don't know numbers. So before me, I had a deep philosophical dispute. Should one count in an orderly fashion and do a particular number of repetitions of a, to gain strength, or does one go to exhaustion all the time? So I did, heart, I did ponder, do body know numbers? <laughs> but then I was like, hey, the other guy sounded like a Cartesian duelist, so I'm going to start doing reps. Look that up. Uh, so anyway, generally speaking, even in spirituality, things take work. I'm not really sure how that story tied in with that point, but watch it later and you'll get the picture. But remembering this will help us with a number of things, including not taking the Holy Spirit's MO for granted. Um, so, for instance, and I, I, I think I've shared this before with you. I think a lot of us take for granted God's grace, and it allows us to play with sin. We give ourselves a little bit of license to play with sin, play with sin because we start playing and playing and playing, and then we know it eventually we'll probably say, oh, I shouldn't do that anymore. Dear Lord, please give me back all the stuff that I lost. And we feel that we're going to be transported without any sort of baggage or anything like that. Now, I mean, in this world of, in this technological age, I still do get off on the wrong exit. You know, I make wrong turns. And sometimes I, found out, I find out later, I'm listening to a book, and I'm not paying attention to my GPS. My first intuition is not to pull over and pray, dear Lord, please forgive me for that. Please teleport me back to the place where I deviated off the true path. Give me back the wear and tear on my car, and also the 10 minutes I just lost. Who does that? Do any of you do that? But we do, we do that in our spiritual lives, though. We think we can go down the path and like, oh, okay. Dear Lord, please bring me back to the same path, the same path where I left off without any sort of consequences, working through any sort of baggage. Just, he can. He just doesn't seem to do it that way. He may give us gracious tailwinds to push us faster, but it's just not the way it works. So, um, let's go back to this temptation business. Okay, because we have to talk about the fallenness aspect. So we've, we've talked about sort of God's MO, God's, God's modus operandi of seeming in this at least post-fall world, we have to go through strugg struggles and strains to get better. But one of the things that makes this even harder is our fallenness. And so if you look at verses 
13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So some commentators, New Testament scholars, have noted that um, it was not uncommon for other religions of the day to identify the gods as the ones who are sending them temptation and dangling wonderful evils in front of their, their, uh, their eyes to, for them to grasp a hold of. You know, whatever the case, that's not the way it is with our Lord. So the second reason we have so, such, we just have a, such a hard time of it is our fallenness, our propensity, our propensity to sin. There's also an interesting debate in this passage. Um, not everyone has to pay attention to this little part. Uh, this is something that you can argue with peaceably later. So let me go over to Nerd Corner. There is a debate about the nature of temptation. Um, so this talks about here. Person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. These desires here are illicit desires. These are illicit desires. Um, the Roman church taught that these illicit desires did, did not technically count as sin. They were involuntary, they were ma manifestations of the flesh, and that they don't count as sin. The reformers, when they came on the scene, looking at particularly Galatians chapter 5, they're like, no, no, no. Illicit manifestations of our fallenness that bubble to the top, to our consciousness, those are sin. They're opposed to the spirit. In Galatians 5. So let me give you an example. I mean, oh, lust. Lust that just percolates up and like, oh, I, I enjoyed that thought. It was involuntary, but I enjoyed that. Or let's go seemingly more innocent. I don't know if it is. It probably is not. Is, uh, you know, I have, you know, I roll around in a 2007 Toyota Sienna. It's a beautiful vehicle. Gets me to point A to point B during the week, and maybe from point A to point C on the weekends. My neighbor, he who has a, a wonderful new BMW, um, he's just like, hey Marco, you want to race? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny, Bob. <laughs> Soccer dad much? <laughs> And then one day I see, it's an icy day, and I hear, Bob's sliding down his hill. Bob's running in to the light post, knocks out his, a lot of dents, and I'm like, <laughs> the reformers would say, sin, 
sin. Look at the uncharitableness that you, you, you harbored against Bob, who is a jerk, but still. <laughs> right? So, this, this debate between what would become the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, eventually this debate came into Protestantism. So depending on the theologian and their definition of sin, some people believe that sin can be wholly involuntary, others do not. But um, whatever, wherever you land on the dispute, I think we can all agree that lusts, or here's another word to look up, concupiscence, concupiscence, whether you think that all those things are sin or not, they're not good. Right? They're not good. So again, if you, if you don't want to call them sin, fine. But it's not good. So our means of sanctification, so here's like my application phase. Our means of sanctification should be focusing on the Lord. First things first. Prayer, focusing on the word, uh, fellowship. I mean, those are the means of sanctification. And a lot of times, all the other little things take care of themselves. Like, if you scrupled over all, every single one of your little issues, you would probably... C.S. Lewis once said... Sorry, I'm, I'm on a C.S. Lewis. I said C.S. Lewis at the beginning. I'm saying more now. Scruples are bad, if only because they keep us from our main duty. You know? If you were focusing on every little issue you have... No, the goal is focus on the Lord, and a lot of those things will just naturally or supernaturally take care of themselves. But say, sanctification is like the war in Canaan. Remember when they said, you wipe out everyone, men, women, and children. So you don't have to go searching out, I guess, necessarily for all the babies, but if you come across one of these baby illicit sins or desires, you kill it. Get rid of it. I think you can play with it, but before you know it, that biting your finger, you know? You've got to take care of it. And I can be more specific, though. I think we have to be careful about statements about minimizing illicit desires. I've been in so many men's groups. Like, I'm a guy, obviously. And so, yeah. I also know about the Ben Franklin thing, too. Someone came up and corrected me after first service, and I thought, wow, how low do you think of me? But, um, but I've heard it's been in so many, so many men's groups where they said, it's not wrong to struggle with pornography. It's not bad to struggle with pornography. It's just bad to look at it or, or think about it. No, man, you want to kill those desires. Kill them. You don't want them around. So you got to, I think I know what they're, I think I know what they're trying to say. Like it's really, like I get it, I get it man, it's hard to, it's hard to control. But on the other hand, it also sort of um, almost allows it. So I think we have to call things for what they are. Again, I would, personally I would call them sin, but if they're not sin, at least they're not good. There are things that you should kill. 
But the overarching message of this part is that God has us go through trials for our growth. So next question, does God help us in our trials? I'm going to read 16 through 20, and I, 21, and, and I'll be pretty quick with this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, another time they say word, which is able to save your souls. James is saying, instead of pointing to God as the source of evil, point to him as the source of every good gift. And he names two. The word of God, and then salvation, which is closely intertwined with the word of God. Scripture is what God uses largely to change our hearts and change our minds. And that is also what he uses to sanctify us. So instead of immersing ourselves in all filthiness and wickedness, we should immerse ourselves in Scripture. And I think we can do this in a number of different ways. You can do this in, you know, being a part of a community hub, making sure you're coming to church, uh, reading on your own throughout the week, maybe, you know, being in a, some sort of study, but you've got to ingest the Word. So God has us go through trials for our growth and helps us with the gift of his word. So there are certain things that God can't do, theologically speaking. And perhaps some of you have thought deeply upon this. But God cannot sin. God cannot be any less than what he is. He cannot, be, he cannot become imperfect he cannot become less powerful. In fact, in fact, the medieval theologians had a term for God. He was actus purus, pure act. There is no potentiality in the divine substance. He cannot improve in any way, shape, or form. So I think we should expect his word, if it is truly inspired, to be fully inerrant, to be authoritative. And as we've already, as I hope you know about yourself, is that you are finite and you are fallen. So, Scripture should come along, if you're reading it, and it will tell you where you're wrong. And it will also tell you things that you, never, you would never come up with on your own. So, um, I have this, one of my, one of my shticks, and you, you will have heard this from me before, but I think the mark of a true Christian is approaching the word, being prepared to have what you think of as reasonable or moral overturned. And this is why the world seems so different. And I mean, wouldn't, it, wouldn't life be easier right now? I mean, think about society. If you could have certain snippets of Scripture removed, right? I mean, you think that, but then that's just not the way it is. That's not truth. And God must have us follow him uh, to have any sort of contentment or peace. Uh, Douglas Moo writes this. Douglas Moo, who is a, 
a, a very accomplished New Testament scholar and a good evangelical scholar. He writes this. In keeping with the thrust, central thrust of the letter, James insists that the uh, believer must relate to the word as a whole. One cannot pick and choose which bits of it de- to deal with. All of it is to be embraced. So again, the culture, the culture will often um, have different conclusions from us because they, they're, not work, they're not looking through the world with the creation, fall, redemption, consummation narrative. I don't know what the basis of their morality is. I don't. It's actually one of the, my go-to moves in talking with people. What's the basis of your morality? So what is the desired result? And now we're getting into a very, the very famous, probably most of you have heard of this text before, before today. But 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man who, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, Whenever you see in Scripture a, juxtap- a juxtaposing of two categories, pay attention, because that's where probably the thrust of the passage is. And in this passage, he's talking about doers and hearers. Right? And these are convenient handles, because it's not literally what's going on here. It's not simply doers, people that just do, like robots that do. And hears people that just hear and just sit there. They understand everything. But these are just convenient handles. Doers and hearers. So we have to understand what those are. But before we do that, let me just take care of a little bit of a mystery in the passage. What is this perfect law? What is this law of liberty he speaks of? Some suggest maybe it's the Mosaic law. Others think, oh, maybe it is the, maybe it's the ethical demands of Jesus Christ. And some others still suggest, well, maybe it's just the whole scripture, the whole of scripture. Whatever the case, the true adherent of the law will act on it. He or she will put it into practice, this law. So that that taken care of, let's talk about doers and hearers. So I think James is formally describing those with true faith against those with merely intellectual faith, or who can't really be distinguished from those with only intellectual faith, which is not true faith. So... The true hearer is moved by the Holy Spirit... When the word is preached and the word is contemplated, it penetrates their mind and their heart and it works out into their mouth, 
their hands and their feet. It turns into action. That's just the nature of true faith. That's a doer. It's not, they are hearing, but they're a doer. They put things into action. The other person, the hearer, may be thinking, oh, those are, that's an interesting you know, philosophical construct or suggestion there. Or, you know, maybe it is someone that's just really down in the dumps. Maybe they are a true believer, but they're sure not acting like it. But Paul is, or I'm sorry, James is exhorting us to be the former. To be a doer. The hearer forgets, at least because he does not do it. The doer remembers... Because he hears and he does. And there's this little principle that orthodoxy, right knowing, and orthopraxy, right doing, are mutually reinforcing. And it's interesting and, and very convicting, the two pieces of evidence, at least the two examples, he puts forth as evidence that one is a doer. Taming of the tongue, which, man... Who's arrived at that? You know, think about what you, think about some conversations you just had this morning. Or the things that you at least thought in your mind when the person cut in front of me. I mean, you. Just kidding. But then, the attentiveness, he points to widows and orphans. The interesting thing about this is, there's no enlightened self-interest for you in this. The widow and the orphan, they, they're not going to repay you. Currying favor with orphans and widows? You know. So it's just, it's interesting. And I think, I mean, the widows and orphans, I think we have great examples in this church body of those that have been very attentive uh, to these precepts, to this principle, to the spirit of this text. I mean, you can just look around, and you can see it. But here's, here's the gist of the passage. God has us go through trials for our growth and helps us with the gift of his word. The true believer will embody this word as evidence through his actions, namely his ministry to those in need and his virtues or moral purity. That is really long. That's really, that's like a quarter of the passage we just read. I'll try harder next time. That's really long. But that what I think that's what I think the theological principle is behind this text. Um, later in chapter two, I think you're gonna hear this from Craig. You're gonna hear the sentiment because there is another debate coming. So do I have to do good to do I have to be a doer so I can be saved? And that's not, that's not what um, we believe the text is saying. Um, again, you may hear this from Craig later on, but I, one of the messages of James is, you are saved by faith alone, but if faith is alone, it is not true faith. There is an expectation that we will grow. We will grow in orthodoxy, right knowing. And we will grow 
in right doing, orthopraxy. And probably we will go, I'll throw another big word, orthopathy, in right feelings or emotions. Those are fruit. And there is an expectation that these things will be mutually reinforcing. And we're going to hear much more of this um, in the coming weeks. We are out of time. So...